We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today at the end of the service. It's a fitting way for us to end in response to God and to receive good things from Him. So if you didn't pick one of these up in the entryway, you'll want to do that between now and the end of the service so you're prepared to eat and drink in remembrance of our Lord. Well, it's kind of risky, but I want to say right off the bat that today's sermon is going to be remarkable. It's going to be a remarkable sermon because it's going to be from one of the most famous preachers history has ever given us. It's going to be remarkable because it will better, profoundly so. It's going to be remarkable because it is extremely offensive as a sermon. And finally, it's going to be remarkable because the target audience isn't any of us. You're thinking, what? Well, let me explain. The sermon is going to be preached. We have a guest speaker, sort of. He looks like me, I know, but uh, the guest speaker is Stephen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 7, and he's one of the most famous Christian preachers ever throughout all of Christian history. It's his sermon we're looking at. That's what makes it so remarkable. It's now in the inspired text of Scripture. It's also remarkable because Stephen, in an amazing way, lays out for us how to understand the Old Testament. From a 30,000 foot view. It's just amazing how Stephen models that for us. And that's important for us. It's also remarkable because it's so offensive. He's so clear that they are going to execute him for preaching this sermon. And then finally, it's remarkable. The other reason I mentioned. Because the intended audience is, is not us. The, the intended audience for this sermon would be the Jews living at that particular time and space because it is a pronouncement. It's not a call to faith. It's not a call to repentance. It's not an announcement of forgiveness. It's a pronouncement of judgment. It it is a, a closing of a certain chapter in redemptive history and opening a different chapter in redemptive history. It's hard hitting. But that helps us, even though we're not the intended audience, the first century Jewish leaders were, it helps us to understand that there is a closing of a chapter, the Old Covenant, and the opening of a new, and it helps us to understand our Bibles better. So I'm really looking forward to 60 verses. We're going to go fast. We're going to go so fast that some of the things, since it's Old Testament history, some of the things we won't have time to explain, um, but I, I can almost promise you this, if you've studied the Bible for a long time, I think it'll help because we're going to get big picture and that's always important. But if you're brand new to the Bible, it will also help you because at least it gives you kind of the big picture overview of the Old Testament redemptive history from an inspired perspective, from Stephen's good and right perspective. So I'm really excited about this, a little intimidated by 60 verses, but I better stop introducing and get down to business. Chapter 7 of Acts. We're studying through the book of Acts right now. We're in chapter 7 today. Glad you're joining us. And it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Well, the these things, if we look at the verses right before, is it true that you Christians are anti-temple? And is it true that you Christians are anti-law? That's the accusation. And so then the officials say, Is it true, Stephen? Is it true that you Christians are anti-temple, anti-law? 
Don't just take my word for it. Chapter 6, verse 13 says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That would be the temple in Jerusalem. And the law. So there it is. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So when they asked that question in verse 1, are these things so? How would you answer that? Well, it's kind of a trick question, right? Because in a certain sense, the answer is no. But in another sense, the answer is yes. But this is how things go sometimes when there's false accusations and you don't have time or space to explain yourself and you just look bad and guilty. That's what's happening here. It is true. Jesus pronounced the destruction of the temple, Matthew 24 and 25 right? Because he is the real temple, the true temple, and the church is the temple where he dwells. So it's true in that sense, but they weren't anti-temple per se, but but fulfillment, not anti, not against, but there's fulfillment, lesser to greater. Were Are Christians anti-law? Absolutely Christians aren't anti-law. As a matter of fact, they're pro-law, so much so that Jesus fulfills the law. But if the law is fulfilled, the law is fulfilled. By him and him alone, that's why you need to trust in him. So you see where it's kind of, kind of a, a tr- you have to answer carefully. I need to explain what I mean. And Stephen is met with that particular question and he responds wisely. Chapter 6, verse 10, he's filled with wisdom. Chapter 6, verse 8, he's full of grace. So even though this sermon may not sound wise because it gets you killed, he understands how the Bible fits together. He's wise. Everybody there says they believe the Bible, but Stephen is wise. He understands how it fits together, old covenant, new covenant, fulfilled by Christ. And even though he sounds harsh and they're going to kill him, he's filled with grace. You got to tell people bad news if they're going to understand good news. And so I think that's interesting to keep that in mind. The outline, as we approach verse two, the outline is he's going to cover four leaders throughout redemptive history. I keep using that label, redemptive history. God has been redeeming his people. In different ways. To be redeemed is to be set free. The price is paid and then you're released. It comes out of slavery kind of terminology. So the people of Israel were enslaved and they're redeemed. The price is paid and they're set free. So throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see Stephen talking about redemptive history. God is a God of redemption. God has been setting people free, his people free in different ways at different times. But it's always been designed to talk about ultimate redemption in Christ, to look forward to that. He talks about four major Old Testament players, four major highly esteemed by the Jews leaders. And his outline covers these four. He's first going to talk about Abraham and they love them some Abraham, right? They all learned in Shabbat school, father Abraham. They all knew that he's their guy. Stephen's basically going to say, no, he's not. He's not your father because you're unbelievers. Ouch. So first, it's going to be Abraham. Second, it's going to be Joseph. And they like them themselves. They, they like to identify. They, they like to do Bible character studies and say, we're like Joseph. And Stephen's going to say, no, you're not. Number three, he's going to talk about Moses. And they obviously love Moses associated with the law. And he's going to sh- show them that they actually are anti-Moses, even though they say they're pro-Moses. And then the final leader or figure is going to be David. And I'm going to sneak an extra one in. It's David slash Solomon, his son. Because temple is going to be promised. David wants to build it, but Solomon is the one who actually builds the temple. Okay, am I talking too fast?
I have a little more coffee over there. I could get it if it, if it would help any of you. Just a little. Let's watch all of this amazing Bible interpretation that exposes the wrong way to understand the Bible. The Jews have not understood the Bible the right way. They've memorized it, but they get an F or a 5, depending on what kind of school you go to, when it comes to reading comprehension. Okay, They've read it all. They, they understand it backward and forward. But when it comes to comprehension, they get a failing grade. And so class is now in session, boys and girls. And Stephen is going to be our professor. And it's going to be amazing. Abraham is first. How about verse 2? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. I'm going to keep going, but every once in a while I have to remind you, God appeared apart from the temple. You guys think he can only ever be in the temple. We're already talking about God appearing to his people apart from the temple. So watch it with always and never before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised God promised Abraham to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So God was with him apart from the temple. That's a key point to notice. It's also key to notice that Abraham was given a promise and Abraham believed God. He took him at his word. And this is important because in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which is familiar to you if you're a Bible student for longer than about a year, in Genesis 15, 6, it's a classic passage, Abraham believed God, he trusted God, and God counted it to him. He graciously credited it to him as righteousness. Oh. So... That right there is also creating a conflict with these self-righteous Jews, Stephen's audience, because they want to boast about Abraham, Father Abraham, and they think they can do enough law obeying to gain a righteous standing before God. And he's already, maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly, talking about Abraham, promise, believed God. Abraham, Paul uses him in in Romans chapter 4. To be, to be a classic example of you need to look outside of yourself for righteousness, adherence to God's law, obedience. You need to look outside of yourself. You have to look to another, ultimately Christ. Abraham actually would be all about anticipating, fancy word, theological word, imputed righteousness, credited, graciously given to you righteousness. That's how you have a right standing before God, not by doing so yourself. It's critical, it's important, but it's offensive to these Jews. Very, very, very offensive. But it begs the question, where did this righteousness come from? Stephen's going to connect all the dots. It has to come from the coming Christ. Quick footnote. We're going to see in chapter 8, I mentioned it last week, in the audience here is a young man named Saul. And He's going to preach this stuff like nobody's business. But right now, he's on the wrong side. 
thinking righteousness me, righteousness me, righteousness me. It's going to be cool to watch the Lord's sovereign grace work in his life and he'll actually be on the other side of things in a matter of no time. Okay, let's go to verse 6. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners into a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. See, he's going to be the one to do it. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. They're going to belong to him uniquely, covenantally. God does this claiming this people as his own to be unique and to be holy. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So there was exile. They needed to be delivered. They needed to be redeemed before coming into the land. God's sovereign grace. It wasn't because they were virtuous. Oh, we've been exiled because we're faithful. It's not how the storyline goes. God did this freely. We, we talk about God's sovereign grace. It wasn't because they earned it. It wasn't because they merited it. It's because God chose to do it because he's that kind of God. He's a redeeming God. He's also a judging God because he's going to bring judgment upon the oppressors. Why? So that they would worship him, so that they would express gratitude to him. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but all of this happens pre-Mosaic law. Neither the temple nor the Mosaic law is eternal, therefore. Neither the temple nor the Mosaic law, neither one is immutable, unchanging. See, God has been doing this and working even before the Mosaic law. So you could argue that he could be working after, after it's fulfilled. That's how he's building his case. So Abraham is first. Now we're going to move on to the second leader, second key figure. They love Abraham and he's exposing their lack of understanding, their lack of good argument, their foolish argumentation. Now he's going to move on to Joseph. Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, our fathers, and in any other context, the Jewish people are going to say, Yes, the fathers. Yes, the patriarchs. May we be like them. May all who come behind us find us faithful. As the song goes. Because we're so faithful just like the patriarchs. We've got a long history and heritage. As an aside, that song by Mr. Green, I have a very, a person who's very close to me who's friends with him. And uh, he talks about how now his theology is better. So when he sings the song, because everybody wants to hear it, he gives it a good gospel front-loaded preface so it doesn't sound like boasting. I like knowing that. And the patriarchs, oh yes, jealous of Joseph. What? That, that's not good to be jealous. They're jealous of Joseph. That's, that's very insulting from Stephen. Sold him, the patriarchs sold him into Egypt. That, that's bad. That's a terrible look. That's not faithful, but God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor. See, God is bestowing this grace to him. It has to only ever always come that way to sinners. And wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. As one commentator puts it, Israel's pattern of rejecting the men whom God raises up to deliver his people is what we have here. 
It's a pattern. God raises up the deliverer saviors, lowercase s, lowercase d, and as a pattern, the patriarchs have gone after the redeemers. It's not a good look. It's not a good look at all. They're jealous. Reminds me of Acts chapter 5 verse 17. They're filled with jealousy. It reminds me of Mark chapter 15 verse 10. They're filled with envy against Jesus. It goes to pattern. This is what's been going on all along. Okay, verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could not, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb of Abraham that Abraham had bought for some of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So, the people, the fathers, the patriarchs, the guys we want to boast about because we're selective in how we're reading the Bible, if we're these Jews, do the wrong thing and yet God delivers anyway. Do the wrong thing, God delivers anyway. Do the wrong thing, God delivers anyway. But they have a pattern of being against the people they're supposed to be for. That's what Stephen is aiming at. That's where his sights are set. You Jewish leaders in rejecting Jesus, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. Read the Old Testament. Not a good look. Not a good look at all. And they might be, they, they might be prone to saying, well, when we read the Bible, we like to say, you know, we identify with Joseph. Actually, Stephen would say, actually, you need to side with the brothers who are against him. And proof is you reject, you're rejecting Jesus. Joseph was the Christ figure, if you will, lowercase c. I think it's really fascinating. He's, he's teaching them, though they're not in a learning stance, he's teaching us, God the Holy Spirit is teaching us through inspired revelation a good way to read the Old Testament. God redeems, God redeems, God redeems through redeemers, lowercase r, and time and time again, the people who belong to God reject Him. That's the pattern. That helps me. That helps me to read the Bible better. It's not just a bunch of Aesop's fables. And you know, where this person is good, do what they did. And when they're bad, do what they, don't do what they did if it's bad. Not that there aren't principles to learn. Don't get me wrong. But it's really interesting how Stephen, 30,000 foot view, God's a redeeming God. But as a pattern, the people who profess to belong to him go back to idolatry instead of praise. Here's what I wrote down in my notes. Stephen is connecting dots here. Yes, learn from the Joseph account. But don't read yourself into the one who's the faithful Joseph figure. That's a big takeaway for me. 
Now, secondarily, I want to be more like Joseph than his brothers. Don't get me wrong. But he's the deliverer. Better to actually read it the way Stephen's preaching it. He's the one who resembles Christ in anticipation. I find it super unsettling and unnerving and disturbing how we're told from certain circles that we're not supposed to read the Bible this way. Oh, so we're supposed to read it like the unbelievers. (laughs) That's crazy. That's crazy. I don't think Stephen's doing some kind of weird, hidden meaning, secret meaning, hyper-allegorization or something. He's just reading 30,000 foot view. There's a pattern. And look how it keeps repeating itself. And maybe, if, if I could just push it a little bit, when he's martyred, you don't get the sense, we're going to see it, that Jesus scolds him for bad hermeneutics. <laughs> Jesus is going to stand up and welcome him into heaven. Okay, we better move on. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Okay, number three, next key leader, Moses. Well, if you just before we read verse 17, it is important that we revisit chapter 6, verse 11. So if you just want to scroll up or glance up there, 6.11 says, They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous, lying words against Moses and God. So that's the accusation. Oh, so Stephen's like, I welcome that. Thank you for playing. Verse 17 of chapter 7. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Verse 20 is important. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful or found favor in God's sight. It's this sovereign grace idea again. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And then he was exposed. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. I had to put my put a note in my margin there, Luke twenty four nineteen. Luke, our author recording these things, uses the same descriptor to describe Jesus. Moses is a Jesus figure, right? Same kind of verbiage. He's he's gonna be a deliverer, savior kind of figure, lowercase d, lowercase s. Verse 23 says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, fellow Jews, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed. He defended the oppressed man. And that actually, I highlighted that because at first you're like, huh, that, that kind of sounds savior-ish. That sounds like what God would do. And you're on to something if you're thinking that because what I first had a Hunch, it was saying, you keep reading, it's going to become explicit. He, he's doing something just. He's doing something right. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 25 says, this is important. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. 
See, not ultimate salvation, but deliverance, temporary. But it's all prefiguring ultimate salvation in Christ. Moses is a savior figure. He thought that they would see that God was giving them salvation, deliverance by his hand, but they did not understand. So I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment. Stephen's preaching this to the unbelieving Jews who had crucified Jesus and had the disciples arrested and are persecuting them and are going to kill Stephen. And Stephen's saying, again, look, now let's use Moses and let's use the people of Israel. And they say what was good is actually bad. Just like you guys did with Jesus. 26 says, And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler? Oh, a good synonym for that would be Lord. Who who put you in charge? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? 28 says, And you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Can't you just hear that on a playground? Snotty little kid. I wasn't in my notes. Maybe we should scrap it from the audio. He did something right. And then the next day or so, they accuse him for doing something wrong. Are you going to do that to me too? It's just ugly. It's gross. It's sickening. It's disgusting. And it's a lot like, although worse, what the Jewish people did to Jesus. 29 says, At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then, verse 33 says, Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Before we get to verse 34, And it's not the temple. So don't be utterly surprised if God is not constricted forever and ever to a physical temple. It goes to pattern. 34. It's worth emboldening and underlining because it is so critical to the argument. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver. That's the salvation word. I've come to save them. I've come to deliver them, to set them free, to redeem them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Notice, Moses is a deliverer. He is a savior. Lowercase s, 35 says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. I I thought that was interesting because that's what's been going on throughout the opening chapters of Acts. God did this, but you guys did this. You guys crucified him. God raised him up. Sounds a lot like what we've been seeing repeated in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Who's on the right team? 
It's Stephen. Then it says, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. See, I'm not making this stuff up. Moses is a redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out. Deliverance, set free, redemption, salvation. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Oh, for the sake of time, we won't look at those contrasting texts, but it's Acts chapter 2, 22 to 24, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Acts chapter 4, verse 10. But hopefully you're seeing it here. Moses is a redeemer. He's not the redeemer, but he's a redeemer. One helpful commentator put it this way. God's deliverance of his people through his servant Moses prefigured the greater and final deliverance of God's people through Jesus Christ. And yet the people of God grumbled and complained and opposed and revealed their unbelief. One of the most important verses, I think, and I know I've been saying that a lot because there's a lot of important verses in the Bible. (laughs) But verse 37, this is the Moses. I like the article. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, don't miss this, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Quoting Deuteronomy 18. Moses, Moses was pro-Jesus before Jesus showed up, right? There's going to come a greater Moses. I'm the shadow. I'm the type. But there's going to be substance coming the greater ultimate Moses, if you will. There's going to be the antitype coming. I'm a redeemer. I'm a deliverer. I'm a savior. But you ain't seen nothing yet, right? Moses himself spoke of another like him. You see how absolutely crazily upside downedly, let's start making words up, (laughs) bafflingly, stupidly, Insanely, we could do this all day. (laughs) It is to see the shadow as the substance. It's a different religion. It's not Moses approved, but the people are convinced that Moses is the end game. And the physical temple in Jerusalem is the end game. And they couldn't be more wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. The substance belongs to Christ. If you're new, you can jot down, so you don't take my word for it, a passage that I refer to a lot in my interpreting the Bible, and that is Colossians 2.17, where the Apostle Paul, who will really get this later, he doesn't get it now, will say, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to whom? It's Christ. If you don't see that, you, 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 you get everything all mixed up and confused. Christians aren't anti-law. Christians aren't anti-temple. But we don't see them as the ultimate endgame, as the substance. They're always designed to anticipate the one who is more real than a physical temple. Think about that. His name is Jesus, who fulfills the law, meets the obligation. 
fascinating what, what he does with Moses here. Okay, we better move on to verse 38. He's going to poke, he's poking the bear here, I think. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. He actually uses the word that's translated in chapter 5, verse 11, church. This is the one, it's the Greek word ekklesia. This is the one who was in the ekklesia in the wilderness. I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but it makes me smile. You know, Moses was in the church in the wilderness. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. I mean, there, there's a certain sense that we, the old covenant and the new covenant are absolutely different, right? Because fulfilled, substance belongs to Christ. But yet in another sense, there's a connection. You know what? Moses was in agreement way back in the assembly, you can translate it. But maybe he's doing it on purpose. You people are anti-church, anti-Christians. You know what? Moses was in the church in the Old Testament. Kind of weird. Kind of good. The point, I think, in all of this, even if you don't buy into emphasizing that, the point in all of it is Moses says, yep, a greater one's coming. A greater deliverer's coming. Don't make me the end game. Okay. Let's keep going. In the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. 39 is important. Our fathers refused to obey him. Chips off the old block, you guys are, in chapter 7, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying, Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses... This deliverer, savior, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Redemption, redemption. Ugh, I mean, it's, this is, this is bad. And Stephen's saying, you guys are just like that. 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now he's going to quote Amos chapter 5, verse 25. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech, false god, idol, and the star of your god, lowercase g, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. Notice how ironic and how... Crazy that is. You made these to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And actually, Stephen changes it. The actual text from the Old Testament from Amos chapter 5 says beyond Damascus. And now he said, but he ends it with beyond Babylon. Because now for two more centuries off the top of my head, it just keep, it's just been going on. It's still going on. Even longer than that. It's worse than Amos even said originally. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to kind of get, get, get down to it. There's one more leader here, one more character that we need to look to, and that would be David slash Solomon, because David will talk about the temple, but it will be built by Solomon. So we're going to, we're going to talk tabernacle. So tabernacle, unique dwelling of God, tent, think tent, uh, but eventually we move into the permanent structure and we're going to move into temple, Solomonic temple. And these Jews that Stephen's talking to are all about the temple. Forever and ever and ever, there's going to be this temple. Because they think the shadow is the substance. And they're confused. 
They think Christians are anti-law and anti-temple. And actually, Christians are pro-law. We just need a perfect fulfiller of it. And we're pro-temple because the antitype anticipates the, excuse me, the type anticipates the antitype. Gets confusing sometimes. The shadow anticipates the substance. Jesus is the true unique dwelling of God. Okay, that's what's going to happen now. Ready for verse 44? There's only 60 verses. Should I slow down? We don't have another service to do. You know, it's fun when you learn things because then you get to share what you learn with other people. It's one of the exciting things about it. That's why one thing I love about working through the book of Acts and seeing how the dots get connected. It's wonderful. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Ooh, I'm itching to talk about that, but I better just use self-control. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, emboldened this part, so it was until the days of David who found favor. Romans chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Sovereign grace, and now he uses a similar kind of thing with David. And David is also mentioned in Romans chapter 4. Paul couldn't be more wrong-headed right now in his thinking, but he's going to get it later. David wasn't inherently virtuous. Read the Old Testament. (laughs) But he finds favor. He finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Solomon builds the temple. Stephen's not saying there is no such thing as legitimate tabernacle. He's not denying that. He's not saying there's no such thing as a legitimate temple. He's not denying that. He's acknowledging that as part of redemptive history and how God has worked. But what Stephen is going to do is deny the fact that it was meant to be forever and ever and ever and ever and ultimate. It's not the substance. You can't limit God by this building. Verse 48 says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, verse 49, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You can't limit God. In so many ways, the temple is there for them, not for God. God God is God is infinite and eternal and omnipresent. He's the creator of all things. And so therefore, it get this, it is not blasphemous to have a theology that says that temple was legitimate, but it has an expiration date. When the ultimate temple comes. Therefore, it's not blasphemous for Jesus to say in Matthew 24 and 25, this temple is going to be mowed down in judgment. Closing of a chapter, Jesus is the true temple, the ultimate temple. That's not blasphemous because it's never, ever, ever, ever even been true that God is limited to that building. And it's not true now. Stephen's not a blasphemer. Jesus wasn't a blasphemer. And what will Peter say? 
Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ and he's using temple talk. He's not a blasphemer. How about the revelation? The Revelation chapter 21 verse 22. Get this. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. That's ultimate. And isn't it weird? Isn't it weird? I'll admit I'm weird. Sometimes. Isn't it strange that we think the physical is more real than the spiritual? And we have it exactly wrong. What could be more real than the Solomonic temple? Well, read the Revelation. I'm not saying it's not talking about real things either, by the way. It's fascinating to consider. Okay. Well, how, how, how do you want to end with these people? What's a, what's a good way to kind of wrap up the sermon if you're Stephen? How about verse 51? You stiff-necked people. You don't get the sense he has his Joel Olstein smile on. <laughs> you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always, you know, usually we shouldn't say always and never, <laughs> you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Just ever so quickly, the Spirit was there in the wilderness, Isaiah 63, 9 to 10. The Spirit was there with Moses, Numbers 11, verse, chapter 11, verse 25. The Spirit was there with Jesus, Luke 4, 18. And now the Spirit is here with Stephen, chapter 6, verse 5 and 10. But these guys, like their fathers, always resist the Holy Spirit. It's the same as it ever was. 52 says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? How about that for a rhetorical question? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of, get this, the righteous one. They killed the one who announced, they killed the prophets, the one who announced the coming of the righteous one. Which is really important in our context, and I know we're wrapping this up and maybe growing a little tired. The righteous one is referring to Jesus. So you, you big law boasters... Oh, we love the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. You terrible Christians are antinomian, anti-law. Stephen's like, you want to talk about terrible? You crucified, you killed, excuse me, you killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one, the fulfiller of the law. Talk about horrific, terrible, outlandish. The coming of the righteous one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who meets the obligation for all who would believe in him. It says, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We love the law and we're so good at it. You're so blind, you crucified the only one who ever has been or ever will be good at it. You boast about law and you execute the only one who ever perfectly upheld the law. 
That's the end of the sermon. Can you believe it? (laughs) Did you notice what was missing? I I mentioned it earlier. What's missing? He doesn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's been the pattern and it will be the pattern. He doesn't say, repent for the forgiveness of sins. That's been the pattern and it will be the pattern. Nothing about forgiveness. Now, it's hypothetically true, right? It is true. If they believe in Jesus, they'll be saved. Saul is there. But what we should notice for now is it's on purpose, I think, because it's an indictment. It's a pronouncement of condemnation, judgment. That chapter is closed. Old covenant chapter. New covenant chapter is open. But interestingly enough, that will now open the door for chapter 1, verse 8. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what's going to start unpacking now. Because this part's over. We're going to move beyond this. But it's it's harsh, hardcore, devastating. Now the response of the Jews, and we'll wrap it up. Now, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They're full of rage. Notice the contrast. And they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit. So they're fully enraged. He's fully Holy Spirit controlled, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which is odd because usually it's Jesus seated at the right hand, right? His work is done. It's still true. Maybe he's the seated standing one, right? But because his work is done, he's at the place of power and preeminence and prominence, authority, but he's obviously here Showing mercy, kindness, acceptance, grace towards Stephen because Stephen's going to lose his life. And Jesus, if you will, to use the image, gets up to welcome him into heaven as the first Christian martyr. It's a beautiful image of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he responds to those who are persecuted for the gospel and here martyred. He's his advocate, verse 56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, the Messiah, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, notice Luke wants to capture the action. As they are stoning Stephen, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Which is a great metaphor for believers dying. Because it's guaranteed acceptance by Him to have eternal life in glory. It's interesting how He sounds kind of like Jesus when He dies. It's not a prerequisite for getting into heaven, I don't think. I haven't found that in the Bible. But it's a good way to go. If we're going to go, may God help us to go like that. He gets grace. He's full of grace. And so he can say what he says here. Pretty soon, in Acts chapter 21, we'll be there by 2028. (laughs) No, we're going fast. Acts 21, 28 is going to say this. This is the man, referring to 
Saul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. Oh, it's so interesting to see how God sovereignly works in the life of an unbeliever to draw them to salvation in Christ and to light him on fire to also be a bold martyr. Final thought would be, notice the contrast between earth's verdict by religious leaders who even claim to believe the Bible in this case. Earth's verdict is blasphemer, horrific, horrendous. Let's kill him. Heaven's verdict is Jesus gets up to welcome as a savior advocate. That can encourage you this very day to live for the glory of Christ regardless of what happens because heaven's verdict isn't the same as earth's verdict. And it's good to know that in life and in death. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the Apostle Paul will say. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for this great and exciting passage of Scripture. We're thankful to know that you are a God who delivers, a God who saves. Here we are today acknowledging the greatness of the ultimate Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet help us to not do so in a way that is prideful because we're no better than anyone else. It's only because of your sovereign grace that our eyes have been opened, that our hearts have been changed. But our longing is for the eyes to be opened and hearts to be changed of other people that we know or who are yet to know. Please use us toward this end for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.